This is Parrot Talk. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com. Good morning. Today is September 11th, 2023. And we will never forget the day that Liberty died in these United States. New York City came under attack in 2001, 22 years ago. Seems like a lifetime ago. And yet, almost everybody remembers where he or she was standing on the day that the towers came down. Country songs were written about it. People were riled up. A divided United States which had just endured the hanging chads and the Supreme Court selection of George W. Bush, the compassionate conservative. At that time, his hair still had color to it. Everybody remembers the imagery of New York City being attacked. The Twin Towers, the World Trade Center, brought down. Everybody remembers the let's roll on that flight that was taken down in the middle of Pennsylvania. Everybody remembers the plane hitting the Pentagon. What few people remember, though, however, comma, pause for effect. What few people remember are the outcasts, the skeptics, the conspiracy theorists, who in 2001 and 2002 began saying things like, jet fuel doesn't melt steel. That sounded, to me, back then, like... Someone who wasn't patriotic enough. You just weren't patriotic enough if you said things like, jet fuel doesn't melt steel. Good morning, this is the Paratalk Show, brought to you every single day at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time here on the Crusade Channel, live talk radio the way it should be. I am your humble host, Mike Parrott, and I am broadcasting from the heart of America, Although sometimes I broadcast from very interesting places, and I plan to do that later this year. More on that later. You can email me at restoringthefaithmedia at gmail.com. That is my email address, which I use for all things media-related. Restoringthefaithmedia at gmail.com. Now, I still remember... Exactly what I was doing on 9-11-2001. Do you? Do you remember? I was getting pulled over and getting a speeding ticket. That's right. I was an upperclassman in high school. And I was out at a dental appointment or something. And I was coming back to school. The world was under attack. People were on lockdown. They were canceling school, and I was going back. I was listening to it on the radio, and this cop pulled me over for going two miles an hour over in a school zone. And I'm like, "Uh, hello, our nation is under attack. Why am I getting this ticket right now? It was a kind of a surreal experience with law enforcement, but there you go. Priorities, priorities, priorities. Back the blue. 
I'll never forget. This was at a high school in Texas. The principal came on the line on the intercom and led the school in a prayer for the protection of the United States of America. That probably violates some fake federal statute crime. Couldn't be done today, not even in the Lone Star State. But at the time, it seemed so appropriate and everybody complied and played along. Nobody objected to it. I remember seeing, at the time, the videos of people cheering around the world that we had been attacked. And I remember thinking that those people were all in on it. It was only later that I found out that those imageries, those, those, those videos of people standing on the rooftops cheering, well, they were Israelites. They were Jews. And they weren't necessarily cheering that we had been attacked or hurt. They weren't cheering the dead, I don't think. Although it's possible to put nothing past them. What they were cheering was that they knew that the juggernaut, the United States of America, would be employed to do their bidding, finally. That this was the event, the impetus for which all of their hopes and dreams would be fulfilled through American blood, American treasure. That is what... They were celebrating. It would only be later in life that as I looked back at the total and complete transformation of our society, of how we thought, of how we acted, of how we behaved, it would only be later in life as I looked back that I realized what had truly transpired on 9-11, 9-1-1. What a perfect date to be quote unquote attacked. 911 is ingrained in all of our minds anyway as an emergency. You have an emergency? Call 911. Anywhere in America, 911. So on 911, on 911, we were attacked, they said, by 17 hijackers. And we took it at face value that we knew the identities of these 17 hijackers because their passports were found amongst the rubble. Do you remember when their passports were produced like two or three days later? The towers had fallen. Human beings were trapped inside. They couldn't be found or located. It was chaos pandemonium in all directions. Manhattan was covered in a cloud of dust, soot. And yet, just, I guess, floating on the top of all of the rubble were these 17 passports, which were presumed to be, well, these, are, these were the terrorists. And these terrorists came from the Middle East. And this was the first time that we had radical... Islamic terrorism in these United States. Jihadis were born that day. Now, I know that they had attacked the USS Cole, and I know that they have been committing little terrorist acts all over the place up until that point. 
But that was the day that Osama bin Laden became infamous. The most wanted man in the world. Imagine that it took 20 years to track him down and kill him. Imagine Osama bin Laden somehow escaped the grip of the most sophisticated military and intelligence service the world has ever seen. We are literally listening to, recording the phone calls of every human being on planet Earth, sifting the email traffic, the digital footprints, creating files on everybody. And yet it took us almost two decades to locate Osama bin Laden and to kill him. Of course, we never got to see the body. The body was thrown off a boat. So I'm very sure he's dead. Just like how we never saw the bodies in Sandy Hook. I'm very sure all those children are dead. If I sound in any way jaded or skeptical, you'll have to forgive me. You'll have to forgive me because I drank the Kool-Aid. I raised up my right hand and I said, I will support and defend the Constitution of these United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I put on a military uniform I grabbed my weapon, and I went. I went to Iraq, I went to Afghanistan, thinking all the time that not only would it advance my career to volunteer to go to these places, but that I was doing the work of spreading democracy. That I was doing basically missionary work, God's work, spreading democracy to people who hated us, making people safe around the world, making the world a safer place so that another 9-11 could never happen again. I was there in Baghdad, and I was there in Afghanistan, in the southern Helmand River Valley. You heard about the Helmand River Province, one of the more violent places in the country right on the border with Pakistan. We always knew that there were high-value targets sitting there in Pakistan. They would come across the border, skirmish with us, dig some holes in the ground, put some bombs in there, and then rush back to Pakistan where it was, it was said we were not allowed to get them. And we played this game with them for years in the southern Helmand River Valley. They would come across from Pakistan, we would shoot at each other, and then they would go back to Pakistan, and we were like, okay, come on out next time, boys. We'll get you next time. Imagine that. Imagine if we really were fighting an enemy. Imagine if we really had a declaration of war. We would have invaded Pakistan and killed them all. Isn't that where bin Laden was found, ultimately? Everybody knew he was there. Heck, even we had a suspicion that he was there. 
I thought that I was doing the work that my fathers before me had started. I thought that I was fulfilling my obligation, my generation's call to fight for these United States of America and to ensure that there was freedom and democracy in the world. I left my newborn daughter when I went to Iraq. I left my newborn son when I went to Afghanistan. When I came back, they didn't recognize me. They had no idea who I was. There was an, a, a, a period of reintroduction. My bride lived without me. My family had to carry on, not knowing if or when I would return home. But I was doing the work that my nation had called me to do. That... That much, I knew, was, was very clear. The other part of it was that in military culture, in military HR, the more deployments you do, the more combat time you have, the better it is for your career. And so volunteering and maneuvering around and trying to get to the unit that you, that you know is deploying, I was able to negotiate a, uh, a move off of the island of Okinawa six months before we were supposed to move so that I could fill a spot at a light-armored reconnaissance battalion, which was deploying. I thought, man, I hit gold. I'm going straight from a combat deployment in Iraq while living overseas in Japan. Left my family in Japan. And we moved into the middle of the, of the desert so that I could be... I could join up with a unit, light-armored reconnaissance battalion, which was preparing to go over to Afghanistan. I thought, man, this is a masterstroke. Someday I'll be a colonel and I'll look back on all the sacrifices and I'll say it was worth it. And we're going to go get those terrorists. It's one thing to fight them in Iraq, but it's another thing to go find them in Afghanistan. This was the heart of the terrorists. This is where they attacked us from. Iraq seemed to be, at that time even, some kind of weird side tour but Afghanistan was where we needed to be and we went forward and we found them and the rest is history went over came home survived it and then I started to think about it in retrospect at that point I started to wonder what it was all for. You know, fighting under the rules of engagement which we were given in Afghanistan, which were so restrictive that basically you could have enemy combatants, known members of Al-Qaeda, that you, you, you know, you, you have confirmed through DNA, fingerprints, facial recognition, these people are members of Al-Qaeda. They are on the MSRs, which are the roads that we traveled. And they are digging holes in the ground and putting bombs in the ground. And according to the ROE, the rules of engagement, you could not engage those people. You could call the local Afghani forces, the Afghani National Police, Afghani military, 
And you could say, hey, there's this guy, and he's building a whole new house, and here's his name. It's Muhammad Al-Jawawi, and he's, he's on this street right here, digging a hole, trying to kill us. And you would have to rely on the Afghanis to do something about it. But in a corrupt culture, where the chief of police of the Afghani police is also Al-Qaeda, and you know that, and you can't do anything about it because you're trying to nation-build, guess who doesn't get arrested? So ultimately, who pays the price? Well, we do. Because eventually, one of us is going to roll over that bomb, and it's going to pierce our armor-pierced, our, our up-armored vehicles, and it's going to suck the lungs out of four or five Americans. And that's what happened. That is the way we fought a war. And I look back on that and I say, what, what the hell were we even doing? If we were fighting as if we, if we wanted to win, we would just go off that guy. And then we would put his head on a stake and say, if you ever do anything like this guy, this is what will happen to you. But we weren't fighting to win. In fact, in some cases, we weren't even fighting at all. It became the ultimate and largest self-licking ice cream cone of all time. My experience in Afghanistan was one largely of what they call force protection. What is force protection? It's a fancy word for don't die. What is your mission? Don't die. Just exist in the theater, in the area of operations, be in Afghanistan, be in the southern Helmand River Valley, Spend some money, build some bridges, build some wells, do some things for the local economy, and don't die. That was our combat mission. Now, how do you, de- how do you define success? How do we win? How does one win the war? How do you win the war in Afghanistan? When your tactical mission is... Not a tactical mission at all. You know, when you're, when you're given a tactical task, it's envelop or destroy or eliminate or attack or whatever it is. Conduct reconnaissance. You know, there are certain tasks. You, you have a tactical task. What was our tactical task in the Southern Helmand River Valley in 2012? Don't die. Just be there. Exist. I looked at my leaders to my battalion commander, my regimental commander, and they just didn't have the fight in them. They didn't want to go down to the Paki border. It was a thing. Every, every single time a light-armored reconnaissance battalion would come into the southern Helmand River Valley, each lieutenant colonel who brought a, a new, fresh slate of men into the southern Helmand River Valley, they would plan a big operation where we would chase them all the way down to the border, take the whole battalion down there, Multiple companies of men leapfrogging each other, driving fast in our light armored vehicles, LAVs, with 40 millimeter cannons, and do a little. But even by the time I had got there with my battalion commander, who's a general now, by the way, he just decided, eh, you know. 
There's no way to do it without having constant access to high-speed internet. What if I get an email from higher headquarters and they're asking me a question? I need to be responsive to them. How am I going to get secure internet protocol in the middle of the desert when I'm 40 clicks south of my base? I mean, guys, is it really worth it? These were the types of decisions being made in Afghanistan at that time in 2012. You, you, you could not argue more forcefully that we had no mission. That the mission set, the definition of success was be there and come home and don't do anything risky. Don't try to take the fight to the enemy. Don't try to do anything glorious or heroic. Your mission is to exist. Force protection. Stay alive. Get over and get back. And don't rock the boat. He understood this, I suppose. Which is why he's a general now. And it was upon retrospect that I started to, to wonder exactly what the heck we were doing over there. Why were we even there? One of the things that we were charged with protecting in the Southern Hellman River Valley was the poppy fields. Do you understand why poppy fields are important? I really didn't at the time. Poppy fields are essential to the production of opioids. So in 2012, we were protecting the poppy fields so that Al-Qaeda could use those natural resources, for however they would use them. Just a few years later, we would become aware that there was an opioid crisis in the United States of America where people are hooked on these things and dying in the streets. Those people who cheered, who cheered on 9-11, they knew that we would become the useful idiots, the tools sent in on behalf of our masters. Those people who were cheering are this, this, these same people. Here's an audio I'm going to play you. It's hard to understand what's happening. But what's happening is there are some Americans in Israel and they are trying to preach the gospel and they are being confronted by Israeli police and local citizens. You won't believe what they say. Let me just, before you continue talking, you're going to go to jail. Because the police here, 99% conviction rate. Shut up. We don't do anything illegal. You cannot take us to jail. If you are not involved, please go. Shalom, my friend. We bless you. You're in my country. You come to the United States, you can say whatever you want to say. That is a free world, yes? You're not in the United States. You're in Israel. I understand. You cannot say whatever you want to say here. Yes, you can. It's legal. It is legal 
to preach about Yeshua. We preach at Damascus Gate, the police said it's okay. We preach at Jaffa Gate, the police say it's okay. Please stop. I respect you, respect me. That is the right thing. Are you Jewish? Do you want to honor God? That is the godly thing to do. We respect one another. The godly thing to do is to kill you. That's what the Torah says. That's what the Torah says. The Torah says that people who worship idols such as yourself, when there is a Sanhedrin, to kill us. Yes. Okay. That's what the Torah says. So we know how the Jewish people feel about Christians, yes? That you discriminate against Christians. Christians are idol worshippers. You discriminate against Christians. The Torah says that Christianity is idol worship. Christians are idol worshippers. The Torah says Christianity is idol worship. The the uh, godly thing to do is to kill you. This is just a typical guy walking the streets in Israel. Our greatest ally. Our greatest ally says that we are idol worshipping dogs, pigs, whores, and that the best thing to do is to just kill us. I never understood why I saw those videos of those men, primarily men, dancing on their rooftops in Israel when those towers came down. I never understood how that happened that we would have an entire population of people for whom we have done so much with whom we had collaborated so closely rooting for our demise and i used to think oh it was because they were cheering that they that finally the american juggernaut would go in and take care of those pesky persians and those pesky arabs and and continue the Jewish hegemony of the Middle East. But I'm now starting to wonder if it wasn't something even more nefarious than that. I mean, that alone would be pretty obnoxious. I think all of you would agree that for them to root and and thank the Jewish God... that Americans were dying in the streets because what that would mean is that we would spend money in their part of the world killing their enemies. You almost have to wonder qui bono? I mean, who benefits? Who really benefited from 9-11? Is it the people dancing in the streets celebrating? Is it the military-industrial complex? Is it the surveillance state? Is it the TSA and the Department of Homeland Security? Is it the federal Leviathan? Is it the Saudi oil brigade?
Is it the senators, the congressmen? Is it the executive branch of government? It seems like a lot of people benefited from 9-11, including the owner of the Twin Towers, who just one month prior had taken out obscene levels of insurance on those buildings. The owner, Jewish owner, of those Twin Towers was able to make two separate claims for those buildings, by the way. Because each plane was a separate event. So he made two claims and collected twice. How shrewd. How clever. How incredibly financially genius. I am not going to spend any more time talking about 9-11 on this show. At least today. I'm not going to point out, you know, Building 7 wasn't hit and that it collapsed. I'm not going to point out any of those things. You know those things. You know more than they give you credit for knowing. The only thing I'll say further before we hit our commercial break is the following. The only people who didn't benefit from 9-11 in some way are you. You didn't benefit. Your life wasn't better. The military-industrial complex, uh, the force of government, federal agencies, Department of Homeland Security, the surveillance state, OPEC, Israel, the owners of the buildings. All these people benefited from 9-11. No doubt. There, there, there's, there's, not, there's not even an argument to be made. All of these institutions, these people, these organizations, these whatever, they all benefited from 9-11. And the only people who didn't benefit at all, whatsoever, in any possible way, were you and me. We didn't benefit at all. And I saw my friends and buddies maimed for what? For the Gulf of Tonkin? For the Lusitania? For Pearl Harbor? This is Paratalk here on the Crusade Channel. Live talk radio. The way it should be and we'll be right back. Hey, I just met you. Heard you're a groomer. So here's your millstone. Good luck, loser. It's hard to look right when you're a pervert. So take your millstone. No kids will get hurt. 
gotta get these fools into the bottom of the ocean Down in the ocean Alongside that titan sub Gotta get these guys down to the bottom of the ocean Throw them in the ocean With that titanic sub Welcome back to the show. This is Mike Parrott, your host of Parrot Talk, every day here on the Crusade Channel, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, Monday through Friday. And today is the 11th day of the ninth month of the year of our Lord, 2023. I had to play the Groomers song for you. I had to play the Millstone song for you as the... Man, I gotta tell you a quick story. I don't know if you're gonna hear this story. This is absolutely gonna... This is a gut-wrenching story but this is a real story it's happened in these united states and this is a groomer story there's a young lady named sage blair sage blair was quote-unquote transitioned to a male by her school by the groomers at her public school and when i say public school i mean government school because it's run by the government it is a government school the government groomers the groomers in the government transitioned her to a quote-unquote male without even bothering to let her grandparents or adoptive parents know and they encouraged her to use the boys bathroom despite getting rape threats, because we live in a society now where, naturally, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're going to get raped. That's just what happens when you live in a barbarian society. So, we live in a barbarian society. The government school is forcing this young girl into a boy's restroom, a situation where she's being threatened with rape. She did get raped. She was assaulted in the in that bathroom. And so she ran away. She had a bit of a psychotic breakdown. And when she ran away, she found herself being sex trafficked by multiple men for multiple weeks on end. Later on Sage Blair was rescued. She was rescued by law enforcement and instead of returning her to her grandparents who were her adoptive parents the public defender the public defender this is a representative of the government the government agent claimed that the parents were not quote unquote sufficiently affirming of Sage's new gender identity due to the grandfather calling her a she when he was overcome with emotion. And so the the adoptive parents, the legal guardians, were not allowed to have her back. This young lady has been through hell and back She was sex trafficked, raped multiple times. Not only in the public restrooms of the government schools, but out in the streets. And she couldn't be returned to her 
loving grandparents because they weren't, quote-unquote, sufficiently affirming. So where did they put her? They put her in a boy's juvenile facility because she's, quote-unquote, a boy. Guess what happened at a boy's juvenile facility to Sage? You guessed it. Raped again and again and again. She escaped the facility and was once again kidnapped, trafficked, raped, starved, and tortured. Out of the frying pan into the fire. Sage Blair raped in public school, raped on the streets, raped in juvenile facility, finally rescued and reunited with her parents and undergoing significant trauma therapy, probably for the rest of her life. This happened in Virginia. The only good that I can tell you about this story, I mean, this, this ought to make your blood boil. I can't even imagine what kind of country we live in. I can't even imagine what kind of nation lets this happen to a young lady. The only good out of this story is that the grandparents, the adoptive parents, are suing the Virginia school board and the school counselors, and, thank God, the public defender. The Virginia school board that in which this happened should be hung. Millstones around their necks, cast into the ocean. The school counselors who had an even more direct involvement... The school counselors who convinced this young woman that she was a boy transitioned her without anybody's permission and sent her down this path of abuse, starvation, rape. Well, I would say that millstones probably are an act of mercy for those school counselors. They might even be a little too merciful. We might have to get a little bit more creative for those school counselors. Before we throw the millstones on around their necks, of course. They're getting millstones. Nobody gets out of the millstones in Millstonia. But finally, this public defender, this agent of the government, you're not sufficiently affirming so you can't have this vulnerable, raped, tortured, starved young girl back. You can't have her back. We're going to put her in juvenile detention where she will be raped again and again and again. I can think of some very just, very painful punishments for this public defender. In Milstonia, let me just tell you, and I'm not speaking hyperbolically here. In Milstonia, if this story happened and I were the fascist dictator, you can be sure that nothing like this 
would ever happen again. I would put an end to it immediately because every single citizen of Milstonia would know the names of these groomers and see the horrors on their faces when they met Milstonian justice. It would be a public trial. It would be a public torture. It would be a very public execution, and it would be required viewing by every single adult in Milstonia. This is what happens to you when you groom children in Milstonia. Sage Blair has been victimized by a sick ideology at the hands of the government. The government hates you. The government hates your bodies. They hate your souls. They hate your children. They want all of you in hell. There is only one possible, reasonable response to an illegitimate government which seeks your destruction. And that is to call it what it is, an illegitimate government, and to seek its destruction. If your illegitimate government seeks your destruction, you have every right to call that illegitimate government illegitimate and to seek its destruction. And God willing, we will be there someday soon dismantling this illegitimate government that seeks to destroy your souls and damn your souls to hell. Thank you so much for listening on this 9-11 Monday morning. Paratalk here on the Crusade Channel. Live talk radio the way it should be every day Monday through Friday. And guess what? I will see you tomorrow at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. God bless you. Thank you for listening. This is Parrot Talk. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. Restoringthefaith.com.